VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, October the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get off to a flying start. You know the deal. That can only happen when you join us live on the air to discuss a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, obviously, if you've looked out the window or been outside, it's a miserable old dark, dreary, rainy day in town anyway. Much in contrast with the weekend weather. You know, it's always hard to think back to last year, the year before, what it was like at this time of the year. But in the middle of October, it was outstanding. Blue skies, little to no wind, warm. But with that, and I suppose you see the same thing in your backyard, is for this time of year, I don't think I'm used to seeing the amount of fruit flies and mosquitoes and blue arse flies and spiders and slugs. I mean, out in absolute midsummer full force, but I suppose with the decomposing leaves and the like, maybe that's the reason why. But anyway, they're certainly out on my property. I don't know if you're watching any NCAA women's hockey these days. I am. Big weekend for Abby Newhook, so she scored what was simply an outstanding goal for the Boston College Eagles over the weekend. It's her third of the season already. She's on a line with a lady, lady named Hannah Bilka, who's certainly in the run for the Player of the Year. Top shelf score, scored by Abby Newhook. It's also a milestone. It's her 20th of her career at Boston College. And on the hockey front, today in history, 1946, was the first time that Gordie Howe laced them up for the Detroit Red Wings. I mean, Mr. Hockey, of course, the accomplishments are well understood. He played professional hockey in five, de- five different decades, from 46 to 1980. 26 seasons in the National Hockey League, six seasons in the World Hockey Association. Of course, the first 25 played with Detroit. At the age of 45, had an opportunity to play for the Houston Arrows with two of his own sons. The boys are rookie defensemen, Marty and Mark Howe at the time. But just imagine, five different decades? The legend that is Gordie Howe lists them up. In the pro ranks, just unbelievable stuff. And it looks like we had about 10 of our growlers, Newfoundland growlers, that laced them up for opening night for the Toronto Marlies in the American Hockey League. Now, the growlers open up this Friday in the ECHL schedule. I don't know what that means for some of their full-timers to be back in the fold, to be on the ice for the locals when it comes time. But anyway, there you go. A couple of interesting ones, too. Today in history at the Mexico City Olympics, Bob Beeman set the long jump record over 29 feet. The record stood for some 23 years until it was beaten by uh, a fellow named Mike Powell in 1991. Of course, the controversy surrounding Bob Beeman's long jump was that they thought it was a wind-illegal jump. Whether it be the wind behind you and or the altitude of Mexico City, it was now still in the wind-legal jump. It's still the Olympic record and the second longest wind-legal jump in history, but Bob Beeman today... At the Mexico City Games. Anywho, there you go. Got another couple of scribbles here. Oh, (laughs) this one. During the pandemic, one of the games or activities that saw a notable spike in participants was chess. Unbelievable. I mean, people were sitting down by the millions to watch chess tournaments online for the obvious reasons. But it was today in 1956 that it was the game of the century. 
13-year-old Bobby Fischer, of course, eventual world champion, defeated then-national uh, champion in the United States, Donald Byrne, at the Rosenwald Memorial Tournament at the Marshall Chess Club in New York. The fellow who wrote the chess review piece, his name is Hans Nock, dubbed it the game of the century. He went on to say, the following game, a stunning masterpiece of combination play performed by a boy of 13 against a formidable opponent, matches the finest on record in the history of chess prodigies. Bobby Fischer beats Donald Byrne today in history. Okay, this one I also find to be interesting because I personally love the movie and particularly love the car chase. Released for the first time in the United States today, 1968, Bullet. Have you seen Bullet? I mean, just absolutely outstanding. And of course, the big stars in the picture are Steve McQueen, Robert Vaughn, and Jacqueline Bissett. It is indeed a bit of a crime wave story and trying to uh, uh, unseat a mob boss, but probably most notably, and most importantly, maybe one of the greatest car chase scenes in cinematic history. If you've ever seen Bullet and the 1968 Mustang GT Fastback, at about 1.05, an hour and five minutes into the picture, then comes the car chase. The car chase lasts for 10 minutes and 53 seconds. It begins at where everyone in their mind's eye can picture Fisherman's Wharf, and 10 minutes and 53 seconds later ends at the Guadalupe Canyon Parkway outside the city. So Bullet released today. All right, sticking with transportation, but this is not a good one. You've probably seen the video floating around on social media about a young dirt biker who, just by the luck of it, so the young fellow's trying to cross against four lanes of traffic, gets a nudge from one vehicle as he enters into the first lane, but because it brought the bike to a stop, narrowly avoid getting clobbered by the next vehicle traveling at a pretty hefty pace so imagine getting a bump from a vehicle on your dirt bike probably saved your life people report from that neck of the woods and other parts of the province issues with quads and dirt bikes and the rate of speed that they travel and the noise it produces in all hours of the day and yes interactions with the motoring public we heard a terrible story last week of an atv who just dodged a moose to then be struck by a vehicle on the trans canada highway dead on the scene wearing the helmet no liquor or anything involved it's an annual event where it's particular in the community of Paradise and in neighboring CBS. We hear these stories all the time. If you've seen the video, it's heart in the throat kind of stuff. Just by the grace of God or whoever you pray to or lean to or look to, the young dirt biker who fled the scene before the cops arrived. But man, that is really quite something. Speak to your dirt biker quad riding young fella or young girl because we don't need these stories to be any worse. And that one could have been much worse. This is an interesting opinion piece penned by Gord Follett. Remember back to when there was a big campaign to see the hunting ages lowered. We do know there was lots of controversy at the time saying we cannot trust young people in the woods with their own weapon, their own firearm, their own rifle or shotgun, when in fact the opposite has been true and proven without question in other jurisdictions where they did indeed lower the hunting age. You know, you learn safe practice at a young age makes it much more likely you're going to proceed as a safe hunter in years to come. And now that the province has done it. So remember back in 2017, the then Minister of Fisheries and Land Resources was Jerry Byrne. The minimum age to shoot small game was lowered from 16 to 12, and the age to hunt big game was dropped from 18 to 16. There was all sorts of thoughts that this would be catastrophic, and it didn't happen. 
It simply did not. But it seems like a good move. And there's a great story as told by Mr. Follett in his opinion piece as to what it's meant for experiences enjoying the great outdoors, time with family, the mental release that is time outdoors. And of course, yes, some people opposed to hunting unless you're hunting for sustenance, something to eat. But it's a great story, as told by Mr. Follett, about what it's actually meant. And no, none of the devastating outcomes that were predicted actually came through. He wanted to talk about it. We can do it. All right. (laughs) Released late last week was the review into the teacher allocation formula. It's a 200-page report. It's got some 90 recommendations, all in an effort to improve the K-12 system. We do indeed fall short in a couple of unfortunate areas. Our graduating grade 12 students show a real, solid, comprehensive content knowledge. But here's where, when you do some of the comparisons across the country, apparently we're coming up a bit short in the areas of critical thinking and problem solving, which, of course, will rule the roost. To come through the K-12, those are the two key areas that will be extremely beneficial when you get into post-secondary education, if you choose to do so, and or on the job, regardless of what you do. It does not matter what vocation, profession, or industry you walk into, hopefully as a long, gainful, meaningful career, critical thinking and problem solving. So it's all the notables. You know, it's looking at class size. And class size is important. It's not the be-all and end-all, but they have made some moves on the class size hard caps. Maximum for kindergarten should be 18. Maximum for grade 1 and 2 should be 20. Maximum for grade 3 uh, is 22. For grade 4, 26. Grade 5 and 6, 27. And the maximum from 7 to 9 is 29. And it gets all a little bit more complex when you get into high school given just how quick you move from classroom to classroom from course to course and so it makes a little bit different kindle fish so they also go on to talk about class composition and for me as a lay person i am not a teacher but the stories i hear and the conversations that i have is size is one thing but the class composition really adds in the additional workload sometimes for teachers who are simply not trained to deal with the the variety of issues faced by their individual students whether it be students with exceptionalities or you know all the rest, a learning disability or ADHD or on the spectrum, hard of hearing or deaf, all, all the ones you can think of. So that's where there's got to be some serious thought given. Again, inclusive education as a concept makes all the sense in the world. Why, why isolate or set aside a so-called special class for students who are not quote-unquote in the normal stream? To have them all under the one roof inside the same classroom certainly should be nothing but a positive upside, but it comes with a lot of concerns. The supports need to be in place, and yes, there need to be supports for children who are exceptional, and they need to be challenged and kept focused, as opposed to daydreaming because they got that curriculum down before the teacher can utter a word. Here's where the allocation formula is of concern to the NLMA, or NLTA, pardon me. They kind of delve into the world of collective bargaining. And collective bargaining is ongoing, so I don't imagine we're going to hear a whole lot about it from either the government or the NLTA, and both sides are welcome to, and they shouldn't be both sides, both entities should be welcomed into the conversation. It's talking about hiring practices and instructional focus. So, much like the algorithm for the new substitute teacher business, which is called SmartFind, is they focus in on your qualifications as opposed to your seniority and or your number of days you've worked in one school or another in an effort to have a consistent area for students. But 
if we are going to see hiring layoff decisions based on qualifications rather than seniority, of course the Teachers Association will be, I'll use the word, concerned. If you are a non-union employee in whatever area, these are the types of things that people do indeed talk about. And this is not anti-union. We're talking about school, school children, and the best positive outcomes for them. We do know that you're owed a certain amount of due respect and or opportunity, given your seniority. But I think if we stand back, there are even some teachers that get called in as a substitute and or take on a certain role that they don't necessarily have the background and training to be as effective as we need them to be in the classroom. This is not a disrespect of the seniority ranks. Of course not, because I'm in a position where my wife is a 20-year-plus teacher. But we have to have some attention to the qualifications. We do. Like in Smart Fine, tweaks should be able to be made. Maybe administrators should have some sort of veto when it comes to something very specific, like the teacher assigned has no background in math or no background in French or no background in science and or has never been in the school, and it's a five-day opportunity. We can't have five separate subs. We should be able to tweak those things to be much better, much more efficient. Should not the same be said for hiring and layoffs based on qualifications? I don't I mean, that's going to come across very poorly in a lot of dues-paying members' minds and ears this morning, and fine, so be it, but it's a conversation we have to have because ultimately, yes, respect for an educator, which I don't think they get enough of, and people complain about PD days and they're off all summer and the like, but your sons and daughters, their ultimate success in this world, in part, is because of the effort of their teacher. Don't we all share the want for the teacher to be the best person for the job? I know I'm going to get in some trouble for that, but I'm going to put it out there. But it is interesting that the teacher allocation review went down that road, as opposed to real operational issues, class size, composition, relationship between teacher, administrator, the district, and the department, all of those things. But I find that to be an interesting one, to say the very least. And then we've seen some moves made, amendments proposed for the Medical Act to try to make it easier and more attractive for healthcare workers, and in particular doctors, trained from outside the province or outside the country, to be able to practice here without the length of time and the cost and the hurdles and the paper warfare and the frustration. No question that has meant some doctors have said, nah, it's not, it's not worth it, I'm not doing it. Undoubtedly, again, we all share the same and common concerns on this front. Absolutely, we have to ensure that a doctor has a type of training and accreditation to be for patient safety and testing and monitoring and oversight and partnering with one mentor or another as they make their way to the province to set up shop as a specialist or family doctor, whatever the case may be. But we've got to identify schools that we can absolutely trust, that if you're coming out as a med school graduate from Trinity College and a well-known cardiac surgeon in Ireland, certainly that level of training should be good enough for me. If it was just my personal decision, I said, well, Dr. O'Flaherty has been practicing for 10 years in Dublin and really wants to come, but he doesn't think it's worth it. And or you can select an opportunity to be a surgery performed by Dr. O'Flaherty, and he might not have been trained at Memorial University. Fine. Where's your scalpel? Let's go. So it's important to come up with a streamlined process. But here's where governments always get themselves in trouble is yes, the College of the Physicians and Surgeons, as the regulatory body, has to be involved. And they'll have two people on the five-person panel to look at this particular thing. So they're in charge of the licensing. 
But the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association says they're concerned because they were consulted. At every turn, and not just for the optics, but for the best outcomes and the best timeliness of outcomes, is bring all hands that absolutely are part of the conversation into the fold, into the consultations. And in this case, that includes the NLMA. Now, I know there's been a little bit of bad blood between the government and the NLMA, but ultimately, we're talking about personality conflicts, difference of opinion on policy. Maybe, just maybe, we can shelve that to, to do what's best for all of us. And in this case, bringing them in would have absolutely been helpful. So Dr. Chris Luscombe, who's the president of the NLMA at this point, says, you know, it's disappointing. And they think they could have offered a lot of uh, direction to help inform government on this particular front. But anyway, let's hope that, look, healthcare, oh man. I hear the stories, you hear the stories. There's so many different things and topics and angles we can take inside of healthcare, and we're happy to take it on if you are so inclined. And on that front, see all the money that they're putting forward in form of incentives, whether it be for casual nurses to join the ranks of permanent full-time, paramedics, doctors in rural parts of the province. There's a story coming from a paramedic who moved from Ontario to Happy Valley Goose Bay, and he was promised a bonus for it, but the bonus has not been paid. And they're still dangling out another $50,000 bonus for a paramedic to want to practice Labrador Grenfell Health, particularly in the Happy Valley Goose Bay area. So government, this is important. The incentives may indeed bring more people into the fold here. They might. You know, we know money's not the be all and end all. We've heard those stories as well. But if someone takes you up on the opportunity to come and you're saying a bonus is part of your new contract, You can't have people saying after a determined amount of time that I'm not staying, I'm leaving. Where's the bonus? You haven't paid it. Now, apparently this story was just brought to the attention of Minister Osborne last week, and he's going to attend to it, he says. But if we're going to offer them, we've got to pay them. Look, that sounds pretty fundamental to me. So if it's part of the contract, let's have a timeline where it gets paid. You cannot have this part of the conversation where other healthcare professionals are looking around, they flick onto a local website and say, wait, no, buddy didn't get his bonus. Well, so I don't know how much trust I have in it. That cannot be part of it. So let's get that figured out and get down to it. Sadly, we have now been informed that one of the eight people that were injured and brought to hospital as a result of the fire, the flash fire explosion at Brea Renewable Fuels, of course, come by chance, has succumbed to his injuries. There was no name released for the first little while, and the company says out of respect for the loved ones. So, anyway, his name is Sean Peddle. Well-known laborer, as referred to in the news release. But one has died, our condolences, and I imagine that's why we did have a lot of silence coming from, say, for instance, Mr. Nolan, president of the United Steelworkers Union. So I know there's more yet to be determined there. Investigation is still underway. Three branches of government involved, but... Let's also see whether or not there's a role for the RCMP. And that's not to insinuate anything untoward has happened, but we've got to make sure we get it right because there's some 600 people can be working in that facility and they've got to know that the investigation was comprehensive and anything that needs to be done to make it safer will be in place. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's get her going. I see World Energy GH2 has put some $10 million forward to deal with some community enhancement projects. One quick comment on that is, in an interview with Mr. Risley, he went on to say, and of course John Risley, the man behind World Energy GH2, he sees no reason why the project won't be approved. Now maybe that's just his optimism and fingers crossed, or as some people will absolutely say, in an effort to read between lines, is that the approval process is ongoing and Mr. Risley is pretty cocksure that it's going to be approved and it's full steam ahead. Do you want to take it on? 
you know, and I see that Loblaws has determined that they're going to freeze the price of some 1,500 products in the no-name category right through the end of January of next year. Good PR move, but of course it's going to help some people because it might not be the end of the day or the end of the inflation cost of living pressure line where some of those prices inevitably may have shot up a little bit more. I don't know where the end is, but Loblaws in an effort to convince you to come into their shops are going to freeze prices on some 1,500 products, the no-name variety, until the end of January of next year. And I do want to give a shout-out to these folks. Here we go. Just more good news before we get back to you. The, let's see, Newfoundland and Labrador Arts Award winners have been announced for 2020, 2021. I'm going to give them out quickly. In 2020, Artist of the Year, Nelson White. Artistic Achievement, Jerry Evans. Arts and Education, Anna Herrero Doyle. Emerging Artist, The Silver Wolf Band. Patron of the Arts is Cox of Palmer Law Firm. Hall of Honor is Agnes Walsh. And for 2021, Artist of the Year is Philippa Jones. Artistic Achievement is the Newfoundland Symphony Orchestra. Arts and Education, my friend, Stephanie Rose Slaney. Emerging Artist is Ben Diamond. Patron is the Eastern Edge Gallery, Hall of Honors, Bonnie Layton, and the two other individual award winners, the Rhonda Payne Award, is actor, writer, director, Natalia Henley, and the inaugural Ross Leslie Award is actor, writer, and director, again, my friend, Ruth Lawrence. Congratulations to you all. We're on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you join us live on the air. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number three this morning. Good morning, Stacy. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, First-time callers, please be kind. Um, I'm calling in regards to the class sizes, and after the new report came out last week slating that grade one should have 20 in their class, 20 students per class, in Gander Academy, there are 27 in my granddaughter's class, which is a, a large amount of children for a teacher to handle. No doubt about it. It's a massive number. That's the issue with the caps, isn't it? Is that there are so many of these are suggestions, they're recommendations, they're what people call the soft cap. And in some circumstances, they've been blown by because if you try to break up that 27 into two classes of 13 and 14, it's whether or not there was actually teacher allocated to accommodate that. That's where it gets tricky. In that class, though, of grade ones, there are already five put in with grade twos. So there would be plenty to have two classes. And, I mean, they're not giving a definite date on this soft cap, hard cap decision-making. Like, it's a certain time in October, and nobody is aware of the date. So being Gander's a transient town, like, you get a lot of military postings and such throughout the year. It could go up to 30 children in her class before anything has changed. Just let me understand the, the 27 and the 5. Are there five of the 27 have been moved into a grade two room or it's 27 plus there's another five grade ones now in a grade two room? 27 plus there's another five oh. in grade two. Okay. So really, would it not be beneficial? Like, I mean, that's just the earning. Plus, that that's the French immersion class. And we have also since found out that the um, for the class designation, there's 27 for kids in the French immersion, but there's only 25 for the English class. And that is the, the soft cap. 
Right. The, the point Why I was different. Yeah, the point I was trying to make is that inside the allocation number, for instance, part of the one of the ninety recommendations is regarding uh, the French school district. If you have a teacher's got less than half of full time hours, they get rounded up to half. Teachers more than half full time get rounded up to full. Those are some of the small things that kind of get left out of the big headline grabbers because that can make a difference between the ability to split uh, split twenty seven and I guess thirty two into two different classes of sixteen versus not being able to do. That's the only point I was trying to make there. Is there also the physical footprint available inside Gander Academy for a second class for that grade? That I'm not certain of. Okay. No, I'm not certain. But, I mean, you know, you're offering the French immersion program. Would it not be they should be the same ratio each class, like for the English class and the French class? Give them, if you're offering it, offer it correctly that the children have a half of the chance to succeed. We're a bilingual country. But they're discriminating against the French in that instance, right? And these children go home. Many parents don't speak French. English is a primary language here in Newfoundland. But, I mean, if they want to go through the French immersion program to better their education, being a bilingual country, they could go on and succeed throughout Canada, as well as in Newfoundland. And they're not giving them that ability. I agree. I think there's an argument to be made for there to be a lower number inside the, the hard cap for French immersion students because getting off on the right foot so that you don't see children because of the frustration in the classroom and maybe at home because mom and dad simply speak English and very little French, if any. And sometimes the frustration mounts to the point where the parents say, it's not worth it. But if you had a smaller number of students for more one-on-one opportunity, maybe we could alleviate some of those worries. Yes, and I guess the biggest concern is if three more children come in, that makes it at 30 children. That's going to be acceptable for the whole year. How could any teacher be expected to handle 36-year-old children to give them the ability to learn? It's it's a perfectly legitimate question. I delivered a desk to a kindergarten classroom in the neighborhood school one day last week, the week before, and I'm just going to take a guess. I didn't do a head count. I'm going to say there was 16 children in there, and just with that minor interruption of us bringing in a desk, I'm thinking, how can anyone handle this all day, every day? You know, I love children. I was a stay-at-home dad, but boy, oh boy, when you make the numbers add up to the numbers that you describe, you wonder how anyone can get anything done. Well, even a child came home last week, her grandfather picked her up, this is a child in my granddaughter's class, and picked her up and she said, Daddy, I didn't, or Grandpa, I didn't really learn. I couldn't hear because there was so much commotion in the class. Mm-hmm. So that to me is, you know, what kind of chance are you giving the children? Excellent concern. And, you know, even some part of the province, parts of the province, where families would desperately love to have French immersion available, it comes to mind down in Marystown, where they've seen their French immersion go away. If we're going to have an offering, it can't be if you're lucky enough to live close by Vanier Elementary. It's got to be wherever you are, every uh, kid or child or family would like to avail of it. Of course, there's going to be some critical massive numbers required. You can't have a teacher for one French immersion student. But when we have, you know, future forecasts of student enrollment numbers, which fluctuate year to year, obviously, that we've got to have these programs in place. This is why reviews like this teacher allocation formula are such a big deal. I know we focus in on the oil business and the mining sector and healthcare. A lot of these things that we worry about in other industries, we could probably do a better job of it if we did a great job. Well, we do a good job in education, but if we did even better, maybe some of those other worries would be tempered because we've got such a well-educated public. Correct. I mean, I just think, you know, you're offering it, offer it 
to the best of your ability to give the children a chance to succeed. But it just blew me away seeing this this other report that the the cap sizes they figure should be twenty and there's twenty seven in a class. Mm-hmm. That's a large difference. It sure is, Stacy. Are you able to help out at all in the world of French with your grandchild? No, I've been out of school for many years, and to you know, a couple of words I have because I I'll tell you I was in Mininger. And when they had online classes, and she come, I was left her in the kitchen with her her tablet, and she come out and she said, "Nan, what's this word?" Well, I didn't have a clue, and I said, "Well, give me an you know, use it in a sentence or give me an idea where it's where it's used." She said, "I can't, but they, I need to know this word." So that would be an example as a parent. I mean, I'm a grandparent, but as a parent, they don't know. And this child was so frustrated because I couldn't help her and. It was an online learning. That's bad enough that they've had that. Now they're in class and they're still going to be struggling. One thing I will say, having lived through it, my French is not bad. Uh, lucky enough, my wife is French first language woman. But I saw, I see so many children enter into French immersion, even with no French at home for support at all. It never ceases to amaze me, the sponge-like ability of a young child to pick up French so quickly. Uh, I was... I just couldn't believe it. Even some of the neighborhood children who had parents who were very much English language speaking people. And come Christmas time, the amount of fluent French available to these five year olds was, I think it was incredible, personally. Oh, so it's amazing, but they can't learn if, if the uh, class is in chaos. Point made. So many children. I appreciate the time and the concern, and uh, thank you for being a first time caller. I wish the, the young child the very best in French immersion. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too, Stacey. All right. Bye-bye. I should take a break half on time here this morning. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, to a caller who wants to talk about the wellness wellness check protocols used by the police. And then we're going to speak with uh, Mayor Mike Taylor out of New West Valley. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Teller. Morning, Mayor Teller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, sir. How about you? Better than the weather. And <laughs> that's not very nice out here this morning, but we, we have had a good stretch. We can't complain. That we have. Beautiful in town over the weekend. Not so much this morning. No, sir. Uh, I just want to speak of a couple of very successful events that our uh, town had the privilege of hosting over the weekend. Uh, we had, uh, first of all, the Stewardship Association of Municipalities held their uh, fall working meetings out in our area and of course a town this size can't really bring in big conventions but when you can bring in 30 or so delegates that represent uh, everywhere from Goose Bay, Lab City, uh, Tor Bay, all the way out to Stephenville Crossing and areas in between, it really opens your town up to, to the rest of the province. Uh, so I want to thank the the Lions Club for hosting our, our meet and greet night and for our little uh, networking supper that we had. Uh, they catered the supper, done a wonderful job. Uh, Sweet Delight's done a wonderful job in catering the uh, the meal that was had at our newly renovated museum, The Reach. Uh, we had marvelous reviews on how well it was uh, redone and renovated and, and the spacious area. So I just want to throw another shout out to our tourism director, Victoria Sturge, who done a wonderful job along with a couple of councillors, uh, Sag and Tucker, for sitting on the committee to really, really open up our, uh, our little town to the rest of the province. Like I said, I mean, if there's anybody out there that wants to come and invest in some, uh, invest in some accommodations out here, that's one thing we are lacking in. So we would love to be able to host bigger events. Uh, 
And at the same time, Patty, uh, we also had our uh, hockey vision camp that came out here for this weekend. Uh, we had approximately 60 skaters from all over the region, from uh, Lumsden, Centerville, uh, Grand Falls, Clarenville. They all came out. They were amazed that a 30-year-old stadium was, was kept in as immaculate shape as what it is. They were very, very impressed, the, the coaches on, on the ice surface and how well our ice is being maintained. So it was a very, very good weekend all the way around. With, back to the municipal leaders, what was involved in the conversation? What was the agenda? Well, with the Stewardship Association of municipalities, they're the conservation group in the area. They come in, they highlight uh, wetland areas, they highlight uh, various areas for bird watching, anything that, that deals with conservation. So we have two areas in our town. They went out and visited the Queen's Mead uh, down in the Newtown area, which has been uh, very renowned for its bird watching ability out off the shore. And we also had the business found walking trail. And they're also looking into uh, having another site on the Cape Friels walking trail, which would be another huge uh, assessment, or uh, not assessment, sorry, another huge addition to our wetland area. So, you know, it, it's, um, it's nice when you can bring in people with the same agenda who want to promote your area and promote conservation in general. And I would imagine on top of that is not one community-minded leader, elected or otherwise, has all the answers. Sometimes you just might have either a networking conversation or one of the panel discussions where a light bulb goes off and you say, oh, maybe that's an easier way. Maybe that's a better way for us to approach because everyone's learning all the time. So, you know, someone might have the experience or you might even have new blood in the room that has an idea that very few, if any, of the panelists have discovered or even considered. And next thing you know, you're back on, uh, back on stable footing and doing better for your your community. Oh, there's no doubt, Patty. I always say that the, the town of New West Valley cannot survive without the towns in our region uh, cooperating together. Uh, we had people with, between the hockey camp and the stewardship. We had accommodation. People were saying the Musgrave Harbor, Indian Bay. So it's it's a it's a, a bonus for the whole region. I mean, we can't survive without our surrounding towns, and and same as what the bigger centers like Gander and Grand Falls, they can't survive without the, the smaller outlying towns supporting them. So you have to work together, Patty, or else you, you're you're fighting a losing battle. That you are. I'm pretty sure. Well, I can't remember which one of my boys, but we played in an all Newfoundland tournament in your community, and we had accommodations as far afield as you just mentioned because it just wasn't enough there. Everyone wants to stay close by the rink, but if it's not available, then the other results will be a 30 per person uh, gathering could maybe be a 60 person gathering and no one would have to be traveled as far as whether it be Gander or otherwise to find somewhere to stay. That's uh, good to have you on Mike. I appreciate the time and I'm glad it went well over the weekend. Thank you Patty and again if anybody out there wants the best accommodations we're a blossoming town. Uh, call our town office, uh, send us some emails and, and we'll be happy to work with you to, to build our town. Good to have you on Mayor. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Mike Taylor. He's the mayor of New West Valley. Let's go. Where do you want me to go here, Dave? Kind of lost track of the queue here. Let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. John, on line number two, you're on the air. I'll give John one more crack. Judy? Uh, nope. Patty, will I stick with this or you want me to go? Okay, so you have the, the lines are just mixed up? Okay, I apologize. So let's see, caller, are you on to? I'm putting them both on hold, Dave, see if we can get that figured out. Let's go to line number six. Johnny, you're on the air. Hi there. Hiya, Johnny. Okay, I just had a question about access to public infrastructure uh, in the ways of, you know, little beaches and stuff like that. Okay. Um, basically, 
Yesterday, I was trying to go down to, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Cockles Cove there in Kitty yeah. Vitty. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was told that I couldn't because I would have to intersect private property. Um, whereas I've been going there my whole life. I thought it was a public space. Uh, and I was just wondering, I feel like this is, this is something that's a growing concern, not here, but elsewhere, just uh, people keeping folks from being able to go to uh, these kinds of public spaces. It is. There's a couple of uh, notorious areas where it used to be no big deal. Then the property owner got sick of it. And here's what always happens. And you know this one before you even say it. So many people who are just so quick and quiet and just use it as an access point. No big deal. Not infer- not infringing on someone's privacy. Not leaving behind a mess. Not being loud. But then some do. And after a while, the property owner says, you know what? Shag it. No one is getting through. I don't think they're necessarily allowed to do it. Now, there's a difference between being able to traipse through someone's property to continue on an unmarked trail versus, say, for instance, access to the coast. So it kind of depends on the trail and where it is and whether or not it's a designated trail because there's a couple of spots where it's a berry-picking trail, right? And mm-hmm. it's no one governs it, no one maintains it. It's just been walked for decades, and people know that's how you get up to the berry stash. Then the private property owner has a little bit different authority versus designated trail and certainly access to the water. Mm-hmm. Do so, you know? Do you know offhand, though, in, in a particular instance like that, where I could find maybe access to to a map that would indicate whether that land or that piece of because uh, there's actually a road that goes right down there, right? And I know that you can't actually own land that leads, you know, so many feet from the ocean, kind of deal. So I just wonder, is this person? actually in the right because i feel like they're not i don't think they are now who would manage the cuckold's cove trail is that a provincial trail dave it's got the brown signage which leads me to believe well it might be parks canada now that i think about it here's what i would do the people who would absolutely know the answer to that on the tip of their tongue would be either the crowd at the east coast trail or Parks Canada. If you, you phone either one of those, they'll tell you exactly who manages and owns and operates and maintains that trail, and that would be the entity you turn to. Okay. Yeah, I would try. Actually, Dave says East Coast Trail would be easier, and he's right. Uh, federal government, probably a terrible suggestion for me. <laughs> so try the folks at the East Coast Trail. They'll tell you. They'll know. I don't. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care, Johnny. Bye. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. All right, so I think we got lines ones and twos figured out. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking School of the Deaf. And, of course, one more time, the police protocols for wellness checks. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, now let's go. Line number one, John, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Morning to you, sir. Got to talk to you about uh, what happened last Thursday. Very sad thing to me. One of my former students, graduate of NSD, she came with her family from Connecticut. They're teaching at the American School for the Deaf in Hartford, Connecticut. So they came on up and they, they drove across the island from morning until they got there around four, got here around four in the afternoon and visited one, two, three, four, five of us former teachers from the school. It was a happy visit. Then I took him down to see the school for the deaf. And guess what? It ain't the school for the deaf. It's called CNA, L'Ecole Blanc. It's French, and I'm not, I don't know French too well at all, actually. But you knew that was going to be the case before you pulled in. 
No, I did not know that it had been changed to, to that. I did not. I, I was I was shocked. One thing that, that remains, though, is the plaque at the main entrance that says School for the Deaf and, and the de- dedication by Brian Peckford. And they, they were shocked, and I was shocked. And uh, they had tears in their eyes. Now, what's interesting about this is I, I had a, a contact from uh, a, a woman who's doing her uh, uh, writing a, a, a paper on artifacts and the importance of artifacts to the deaf community. And artifacts from the School for the Deaf were thrown out, completely thrown out. Some of us saved a whole lot of them. I put some into the rooms already, and I have my office down here, oh, I'd say about two-thirds filled with more artifacts. I have them all cataloged, but I can't seem to get them into the, uh, into the rooms. But there's also so many other artifacts from the school that are spread out among people. I don't even know how many people. Pictures. Uh, awards. And I don't know what all, because they were not taken care of. They were not categorized. They were just thrown out. Which brings me to some of the conversation that that Colleen has been having with you about the uh, the Churchill situation and Carter's problems, and what's going on with the the recommendations for the school district well for schools now and the problems with the, that that the the first lady you had all was talking about and that's having the large class sizes when you take that situation and you put a deaf kid in there where you put four deaf kids in there it's, it's unmanageable it's called the concept of autism A-U-D-I-S-M, which is defined by the notion that hearing is superior to deafness. It's been proven that it's not. We've shown that from graduates of the NSD and graduates all over the world from schools for the deaf. But it seems that the prevailing ideology now among the, edu- the, the, the I wouldn't call them educators, uh, among the, the administrators of various schools and school districts is one of autism. That's a death stress. They're not really important. Anyway, that, that's my, my rant right now. And I'm going <laughs> to answer any questions or if I, hopefully I, I I, I got some questions from you. Okay. Um, what I'm curious about, just to begin with, is you, you talk about artifacts, such as is there anything comes to mind, like something you've saved in particular and or things that were thrown away? Oh, yeah. Uh, such as? Well, well, such as the, the picture that the Queen gave the school when she visited back in 97. Okay. Which is signed. Uh, that's in my office right now. We have a, a welcome sign that the students made that used to hang over the, uh, the, the entrance to the residence, welcoming people to the residence. 
uh, I have oh about a thousand CDs that were used by, by students of all ages, uh, educational CDs uh, for for uh, for the computers. And and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have uh, fifteen albums of pictures, and I have uh, a box and a half of slides. So there's some of the artifacts that that I'm sure if they were set up in in the rooms, uh, the deaf uh, our, our deaf population here would uh, would like to go see. Well, I mean, about their activities. even if some of them found a home in the classroom at East Point Elementary that has been set up as recently as two years ago for children who were deaf or hard of hearing, there's a place for these things. Of course there are. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I would like to see the money that is being passed out. Now, I'm not going to give back $500 because I'm not that dumb. But maybe if we had a, a unified uh activity going to give that back that money to see a, a feasibility a feasibility study to, to reopen the school for the deaf yeah I, I give back that five hundred dollars just to have that study yeah i mean i don't does the deaf community want that that's what i'm always torn in because i have spoken with all the various umbrella agencies or organizations and individual families and they're torn some of them absolutely think that there's a uh, the school for the deaf is the only pragmatic way forward, and some are like, no, we just need the proper supports in the school <laughs> inside of inclusive education. So I don't even know what people want, to be honest. Well, I think if you wanted to have a, a proper supports for inclusive education, it would be too expensive. You wouldn't. We don't have the, the money to afford that. I mean, Ontario has three schools for the deaf open. They would probably have the money to to afford that, but they keep the schools for the deaf open because it's more uh, equitable. It's uh, cheaper in the long run. Quebec has two schools for the deaf. Manitoba has a school for the deaf. Saskatchewan doesn't. But what they do is they send some students to, to the Alberta School for the Deaf and the Manitoba School for the Deaf. You know, send them out. In Atlantic Canada, there is, I, I guess the, the, the closest you'd come to a, a school for the deaf would be the, the programs that they have in Halifax. And I think they're like, like satellite programs. But when I did my training back in, in 74, Nova Scotia used to have what they called out classes. And these were classes of students, much like the class that, that you have at, at the uh, but at Carter Churchill is in now with the other students. Now, I assume they're all, all of uh, the same age, right? They're all in elementary school? Right, but they're not all the same age. They wouldn't all be in the same grade, no. Yeah, okay. Well, that creates its own problems, doesn't it? But we, we won't even get into that. I'm just going to give you the, the example that uh, I, I taught in back in 74. And it would seem to be uh, successful. They called them out classes. And I taught at one, practice taught in one in Truro, Nova Scotia. And they had 10 students in the class, one teacher. And the students aged in range from 6 to 14. The grade levels were uh, 
comparative. One teacher for, for those grade levels. They said it was successful. I don't know. I, I haven't done any follow-up on it, but it seemed pretty darn difficult to, uh, to have one teacher teaching, uh, I don't know, how about uh, uh, basic addition and calculus <laughs> in the same day. Well, I mean, I you know it's. I almost struggle to even make the point that you know we were able to pull it off in years past. There's lots of literature out there about the pros and cons of mixed grade classrooms, and you know it really depends on the circumstance and it depends on the training of the teacher and the numbers of children in there and how far the gap and is between the age. There's just a lot to it. It's not a one size fits all. And they were all hearing, weren't they? All these students in there and the, and the different. Uh, uh, Grades were hearing. I mean, I, I went through school. I went to my, my uh, I went to uh, uh, grade one and two in this one classroom, one teacher. She went back and forth. Three and four was the same way. Five and six was the same way. You know, I didn't have separate teachers until I got into junior high school. But we were all hearing. And again, this is a long time ago, Patty. You know, fair enough. <laughs> you know, we're talking back in the fifties. I'll give you the last word, John. We've, we've cleared ten o'clock here, but I'll let you wrap it up, sir. Well, I, I'm I'm done. I I just thank you for for letting me rant a little bit, and uh, ah, I'm sad. We all anxiously, it doesn't matter if you have a hard of hearing, a deaf child, but a child that might need some support, so there's going to be a ripple effect from the Human Rights Inquiry into Carter Churchill and his education. There just will be. If it's ruled, I mean, I don't know the right way to put this, but if it's deemed that uh, Carter was left behind inappropriately so and recommendations come from, we will see inevitably a big shakeup to the inclusive education model that's currently in place, which does not seem to work. Uh, I appreciate the time. John, stay in touch. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll stay in touch. Next time I'm sick, I might call it again. Okay. Get well. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. I appreciate the patience of those in the queue. When we come back, we will be speaking with you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Caller, you're on the air. I want to voice a concern I have with regards to a couple of police officers who work with the RCMP, and no names will be mentioned. I want to thank all of the police officers for all you do for our community, the safety you provide. My grandfather, Constable Solomon Martin, was a police officer with the RNC. His whole working career, he worked at Her Majesty and later the courthouse in St. John's. If he was alive today to witness what I am about to share, he would be absolutely disgusted and appalled. Last night, a dispute broke out between my husband and I with regards to personal issues. A family member called 911. Two cruisers showed up at our home in Long Pond. Words were spoken, and the two officers intervened while I was upstairs in my bedroom alone. Two o'clock in the morning, I lay in bed while my son and husband were downstairs speaking with the officers. I could have been out cold or worse, unresponsive upstairs in the bedroom. Neither of the officers came up to check on my condition to make sure I was okay or to get a feel as to how I felt with regards to the police officers being called to the home. I am appalled as to how the situation was handled. This in my mind is not protocol when police officers are called to a residence. We put our trust in individuals who choose such an honored and privileged career. 
I am appalled. It is beca- is it because I am a woman? I could identify myself as a four-legged creature, for all anyone knows. I need to voice my concern this morning. Thank you for taking the time to hear my concern. I am sure this is not protocol when officers are called to a residence or business. The well-being of, ev- the well-being of every individual is absolutely necessary when a call is made to the police department. Like I said, my grandfather was an RNC officer. He never would have allowed this to happen if called to intervene a, dispu- a, a dispute that would have occurred at a home or a business. I hope this never happens again to me or to any other individual. Thank you, Patty. Uh, you're welcome. Would you, would you like to... the time to speak on behalf of a lot of individuals who, ca- who cannot speak in this world. And we have the privilege in Canada to be able to voice our opinion on behalf of those who cannot. And I want to thank everyone who listened. Were you hurt? Uh, I absolutely, I was. I'm appalled. I'm, I can't even explain to you in words how I feel today. And what are you going to do? Well, my, my words are online now on the, on the airwaves. And I hope that... My voice is heard, and the change is made. Uh, and, and fair enough, and I appreciate you doing that this morning. Are you planning on taking it to the next step further, to present yourself to headquarters to make sure that they know what happened as opposed to what they might have been told had happened last night in the home? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. I wish you well. All right. Bye-bye. Um, and, I, and I don't know what exactly went down there, but you would imagine, you know, police officers will tell you that responding to a domestic violence call is potentially an extremely traumatic and very dangerous situation. I don't know what went down there. Of course I don't. Would protocol include ensuring everyone in the home is safe? You would think so. Because even if it's an altercation potentially between partners, that doesn't mean that someone else in the house might not find themselves in a dangerous situation or have been hurt or harmed. So I don't know exactly what the protocols are for that kind of stuff, but you would imagine it's a check-in on every single person in the house, whether they're members of the family or not, you would think. Uh, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. It's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Patty, uh, I just wanted to, uh, I guess, um, pick up where my colleague uh, Tony Wakeham uh, left off last week as it relates to the future fund uh, legislation. I never heard uh, Tony's call. I I know he was on about it, and um, I know we were on the same page, certainly in the House Assembly, so I'm assuming uh, his comments would be similar to, uh, to, to what mine will be. But uh, I understand that, you know, for the average person, without a doubt, the biggest issue that I'm hearing about, uh, you know, affecting people's day-to-day lives is, uh, is health care. And certainly second to that is uh, cost of living issues. So I know sometimes when, you know, we talk about some of these bills and legislation that gets passed in the House Assembly, it's not necessarily top of mind uh, and a priority for the average person. But these matters are very important and they do impact us all. So I think it's important that we all understand the implications, at least, of some of the legislation that's going before the House. So in terms of the future fund, I I just want to say up front, as I said in the House during debate, 
Uh, I certainly support the notion uh, of a future fund. Uh, and what the government has uh, set up in this legislation, of course, now is that um, any there will be, uh, as we move forward, uh, any royalties that would come from um, our natural resources, whether that be you know oil and gas or minerals, or I guess potentially if anything were to happen with this uh, uh, wind and nitrogen uh, projects in the future, that a portion of the royalties... Uh, on sort of a sliding scale, depending on uh, on the year and, and how much royalties are received. If it's a, if it's you know in in good years when there's lots of royalties coming in, there would be more money would go into the fund than in years where maybe royalty was down because of production issues or or or, or you know whatever the or the dollar whatever yeah the dollar or whatever the case might be. So I think, you know, in concept, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I guess hindsight of 2020, if that had been done a number of years ago, perhaps we'd be in a better place than we are today. But we're not going to dwell on the past. But, it, you know, it, certainly it, it, it's a good idea. So I don't have a problem with that part. Here's where I have the issue. And the, the issue I have is that uh, more about not so much the money going in, but money coming out. And under this legislation, basically, um, there are generally a couple of ways in which the money can come out. It's sort of a given there that uh, money would go out, I guess, uh, to to pay down the debt, which, again, I agree with that in principle. But there's also a couple of clauses there, one around what they call extraordinary circumstance. So what they're saying is that in extraordinary circumstance, circumstance, the cabinet can decide. Uh, to withdraw money from the fund. And that would be like, for example, the pandemic was an extraordinary circumstance. And uh, again, the concept of, of, of being able to utilize money in emergencies, I'm not against that. There's also another clause that talks about if the minister decides that he or she wants to invest in some sort of initiative that would be in the public interest, they can withdraw money. Now, that one is a lot grayer, a lot more wide open, and so on, but that's what they want to be able to do. Now, it's one thing for us to talk about taking money out of the fund at certain points in time, whenever there's it's deemed a necessity because of an emergency or some initiative that's going to benefit the province. But where I definitely disagree is that it was my position, certainly the position of all members in the opposition and, and the NDP and and the official opposition brought forward amendments, as did I. Um, we believe that in the case of an extraordinary circumstance or in the case of the minister deciding there's some initiative that they want to withdraw money, and we could be talking up to billions of dollars out of this fund over time, uh, we feel it should come before the House of Assembly and be debated publicly so that the public understand exactly what this future fund is being spent on so that there's opportunities for opposition members, whoever they may be and whatever party they may be in at the time, to be able to express concerns, ask questions, um, you know, perhaps, um, you know, enhance to what is being, you know, create a situation where we're going to uh, enhance, um, you know, what, what, the purpose of, of what the money is being spent on and so on. At the very least, the public become aware and that we have openness and transparency. Unfortunately, 
the government has decided that they don't want that kind of openness and transparency, and they basically want to be able to take out the money whenever they decide to without going through any kind of meaningful debate in the House Assembly. I think it's, it's a des- I think it's a, a bad move. And that's why I could not support the legislation as was written. Neither could any of my colleagues uh, in either the opposition parties. I think reference to it being a slush fund is maybe just the theatre of politics, but uh, a fair concern to understand what an extraordinary circumstance is. That's in the envelope of non-restricted withdrawals. There are restricted withdrawals, which obviously makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, I'll see if I can remember correctly, they can't happen until 10 years after Correct. They have passed, or the funds balance is equal to or greater than the financial obligations of the province. So I think that's part that you know is very carefully monitored, and that just makes sense to me. What yep. constitutes an extraordinary circumstance? I don't really know, but you can't imagine would be because it's all related to financial harm too. So if it was for a pet project that would no way ever live up to the definition of extraordinary circumstance, if it's port of basque if it's the pandemic, then I think it'd be hard time for opposition members to question an additional unbudgeted spend. For me, the concerns are a little bit different. I'll just add to the conversation. Sure. I don't know if slush fund is the right way to characterize these things. Had this been in 2003 with surplus at that time and we established it, we could be talking about billions of dollars, but of course we can't. We don't know what the initial contribution is going to look like here, 50, 100, 200, 300 million. I have no idea. And wow, wow, how times have changed for the province to even be in a position to consider this while we've mm-hmm. been borrowing until the ends of the earth to even make payroll around here. But no. the concern for me is just a little bit different. Maybe it's the same thing, but just extended one more position. So... A future fund includes the future. Government will inevitably change hands before this fund is exhausted, if it ever really gets going the way that it's been discussed by the governing party at this moment in time. So it just makes sense to me that if the six-person board of trustees... They should be, just like other advocates' positions, accountable to the House, not to the Department of Finance, not to the President of the Treasury Board, because it will indeed be the likely possibility that the current Liberals might be in the opposition benches before an extraordinary circumstance happens. We don't know, but it's likely that that possibly could happen. And the bigger part for me that falls through the cracks here, if you look at Norway or the Heritage Fund in Alberta, it's funded from oil royalties. Like 20% of Norway's expenditures now come from their billions and billions and billions of dollars in their global sovereign fund or whatever they call it. Here, the addition that people aren't talking about is it's not just royalties from one-off non-renewables, whether it be oil or mining. It's the potential to include revenue from government's uh, sale of government assets. That's the tricky part to me. If that six-person trustee board was accountable to the House, that would absolutely demand, and it would be obvious that every single asset would have to be debated uh, case by case, item by item, as opposed to wherever we are now, because no one really knows, because they've you know, refused to release any of the details surrounding the Rothschild report even though Michael Harvey, the province's commissioner of privacy, agrees with them. But that's the one I think, that's the linchpin for me, is government assets. The rest of it, I think we can debate, but that was just so vague. It's a bit of a throwaway portion of a sentence that that could be the largest contribution. Yeah, no, Paddy, look, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I just want to just go back to the extraordinary circumstance. It's one thing, like if Minister Cody were to come on now and you asked her about the extraordinary circumstance, she would say that under the legislation, it talks about an extraordinary circumstance that has significant material gain and um, significant material impact on the province. And apparently there are some definitions in the accounting world and so on that would cover off. So you can't just, you know, spend the money willy-nilly. And, and so let's take our, let's say we agree on that point. That's one aspect. But the other aspect is this whole clause that says 
if the minister decides that they want to invest in some sort of initiative, this got nothing to do with extraordinary circumstance. So all of a sudden we decide we want to buy our own windmills. As an example, I'm just throwing it out there now as a wild example. Then the minister can decide to do that and just take money out and invest in that uh, industry and there's no debate in the House. But you are right. On the assets, it also talks about the fact that money going into the fund would be money that uh, from the sale of assets that total uh, over $5 million. So that raises a lot of questions as to what assets are we talking about. Uh, this legislation in itself has nothing to do with the sale of assets. And I agree because you and I have talked about this before. We absolutely should be, if the government is even thinking about selling off any kind of assets, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a number of them that come to mind, whether it's the uh, liquor corporation or motor registration or oil and gas assets or hydro assets, whatever the case might be, um, if they're even thinking about doing any of that, all those matters on a case-by-case basis, I think we would agree, should come before the House for debate. Although Minister Cody went on with you one time, you asked her about it, and she said, well, if we feel it's in the best interest, we'll have a debate, and if not, we won't, which I thought was a ludicrous answer, because it's always going to be in the best interest of people for us to know what's going on and to have that debate. But that is definitely uh, a not yet another concern. But the, what it comes down to for me is that as opposed to being open and transparent, bringing these matters before the House of Assembly for public debate, government is basically setting up a situation where a few people who are in the cabinet can just basically decide what they're going to do with this money. It's one thing to put the money in, but again, this fund can build up to be quite significant over time in terms of millions and billions of dollars. And to have a few people just to be able to decide themselves we're just going to spend the money on this without having to come before the House and seek approval, uh, I think it's wrong. And so uh, that's why I didn't support it, as written, and I won't be supporting it. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. And, of course, that's Paul Lane, the independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Oral, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? That's bad. Thanks. How about you? Patty, were you watching TV last night by any chance? Well, uh, my head is gone. I watched 60 Minutes last night. That war is way out of control. They killed 600 civilians, and where's the Geneva Convention then? You can't kill civilians unarmed, right? Yeah, it's not really an interventionary tool that's available right this second, but it may indeed end up there. The numbers I saw is somewhere in the neighborhood of 14,000 civilians have been killed since the the invasion began. Yeah, The mass graves. I can't get over it, Patty, but my girlfriend that died in Alberta, she was from Ukraine. They're the nicest people on earth, but... Well, they very well, very well may be. The The numbers are quite staggering. The biggest problem I have in trying to follow along is that there is no real coverage from inside. We're not, we don't have the embedded report that we have from other conflicts in the past. It's hard to know exactly what numbers are real, exactly what comments actually have any merit. But if some of the toll numbers coming from either side, again, it's really hard to determine how accurate any of this stuff is. But let's just say there's around 14,000 civilians have been killed yeah we're talking about atrocities that we haven't seen in a long time well you know i know the rwandan genocide and the uyghurs and stuff yes it's all awful then you look at the death toll of russian soldiers it's being reported again i can't verify it because nobody can verify any of these numbers the numbers of russian forces killed in conflict at this moment of time has overtaken american losses in vietnam 
So Holy God. I mean, somewhere around sixty-five thousand Russians apparently have been killed since the twenty-fourth of uh, of February. I mean, then look at the number of tanks and aircraft and up and down the line. It really seems to be just amazing. But uh, what I don't understand, Patty, it was like I'm a historian. Uh, I'm uh, I, I don't like wars, but I like covering them. And it, it took World War Two for them to invade uh, Germany and invade uh, the states before the Ark could go. You know what I mean? And help the rest. Say that again. Pardon me. Okay, I'm a historian, and okay. uh, I watched the wars: World War Two and World War One. And the World War Two is when they invaded uh, uh, the states, and then you were dragged into the war, right? Are you talking about Pearl, Har- Pearl Harbor? Yeah, but what I'm saying now is uh, the states don't watch it. You don't, you don't want Russia got up their sleeve, right? I think it should be something done about all the leaders should get together and put a stop to this killing of the kids, and the, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't really know what... Petty, the reason why I'm telling you, Patty, they're killing them execution stars and that, right? And snipers. A soldier is supposed to kill a soldier, not a human being, right? But I don't know if they're human beings in my eyes. So, people talk about what should be done, and I hear okay. lots of big declarations about what yeah. should or could be done. I'm not so sure any of uh, anybody's as simple as has been proposed. I mean, complex situations require complex solutions, right? And on this one, whether it be tactical nuclear weapons, or to capitulate to Putin, or to fight back with the full force of NATO, or whatever people are talking about, I I don't know if any of it's on a standalone suggestion makes as much sense as people pretend it does. Well, see, the thing is, there's always that one person like Hitler, right? Just the one person. Just get rid of them and then I'll stop, right? Yeah, the Russians might take care, take care of that themselves. Well, I hope they do because, you know, I mean, Patty, I watched 60 Minutes last night to turn your the four kids coming out, little kids now, uh, two and three years old, and he killed them. One guy on a bike just getting ready to go for a bike ride. He killed them 600 that day. Because uh, 60 Minutes is doing a documentary over in uh, over Ukraine. Yeah, they're piecing together stuff as best they can, given the limited access and actual knowledge and real verifiable headcount. And, you know, the stories of Ukrainian soldiers would recapture some land and there'd be evidence of torture and X number of civilians killed, execution style and otherwise. It's just, for me, it's hard to distinguish fact from propaganda inside of all this stuff. And I think the world is struggling with that. Some of the numbers are probably absolutely very, very real. Some of them... I just don't know. I really don't know. It's been confusing and heartbreaking to watch because where you decide to put your faith in the story may not have you on the right track. It's just one of those things. I I just want to mention one more thing. I saw a girl on the news the other day coming out from the House of Commons and talking about what I don't like talking about this, suicide, you know? Mm -hmm. All the guys around the bay that are committing suicide. And I just only found that out. I think that's something else, too. What's that? Pardon me? Yeah, Newfoundlanders committing suicide out around the bay. Well, and it's right out of control. Uh, it's abs- it's actually everywhere. There's a 25% increase year over year here in this province. Suicides in Labrador Grenfell have doubled year over year. So the numbers are staggering. In 2020, they were stabilized. Now we've seen, and I think there's been a provincial uptick right across the country, but yeah, up 25% in this province. 
Nice chat with you, buddy. Take good care of yourself. Take care, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And in the suicide numbers, I don't mean we should never just turn our blind eye to that we have to talk about it and then you know for instance whether it be uh, I heard Leela Evans with an impassioned response to these numbers regarding the number of suicide deaths in Labrador for instance whether it be cost of living and others but the, the one that jumps off the page where I don't even know what the supports look like you know what it'd be nice to have Leela Evans on the show here because you know, an informed approach from a woman from the region to help us under, uh, understand further the issue of intergenerational trauma. And, you know, there is, a, uh, there is a school of thought regarding, you know, when you hear and see these numbers, there becomes a tidal wave of additional people's considering with suicidal ideation and or doing it. And it's like a social contagion, as is referred to in some social science fields. But supports for cost of living, pandemic pressures, those sorts of things, we can craft plans. Intergenerational trauma and supports in place to deal with that adequately and what that means inside the world of the number of suicides, that one is where someone like Leila would be much more informed than me to talk about what's happening on the ground, what could be done that would see a positive change. I'm not even sure I know what the answer to that is. That's why we reach out to people who might know. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Donna. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I just wanted to big, uh, give a big shout-out this morning for the polka dot trot yesterday in this province. Mm-hmm. It raised $345,000, 417 cents. 417 and 56 cents and uh, my daughter Ashley and her friend are both cancer survivors they raised that money much money just yesterday well I guess uh, well leading up to the polka dot yes that's what I mean yeah Yeah. it's a great deal I must say it's great for cancer patients yeah, of course. And I have participated in the past. And of course, what they do, this is all in support of the Cancer Care Foundation. Uh, Lynette Hillier, who's the executive director over there. And they, you know, I think it was a Paradise Park yesterday, right? Yes. Okay. So out in Paradise Park, they ask people to wear colors that generally are associated with one cancer or another. The, the time that I went, it was an absolute rainbow of colors. And, you know, some of them I was unfamiliar with as to what they represented. We all know pink and breast cancer and purple and pancreatic and others that just popped to mind. But that's an extraordinary total of money raised. Wow. But, of course, like yeah. people say, and it feels like a throwaway th- sentence to say, is every single person in this province has been impacted by cancer, either Absolutely. themselves or their family or their friends because it's never ending is it isn't it it's never ending and so hard for a mother you know to watch a daughter go through this i certainly would have rather for it be me than her but anyway she got through it and she took it on with a vengeance with a vengeance yeah good for her what sort of cancer was she diagnosed with if you don't mind me asking she had uh, uh breast cancer breast cancer and when was this uh well, she's just cancer-free now for a year. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so she had a double mastectomy. She chose to have a double mastectomy. She didn't want to have to go through it anymore. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, so it's all good. Well, congratulations to the organizers, everyone who attended and everyone who made a donation. And, you know, final thought for me, then I'll give you the last word, is just imagine how many more struggles the Healthcare Foundation would have if it wasn't for the fundraisers, whether it be for the Healthcare Foundation, the Janeway, the Cancer Care Center, or the Cancer Care Foundation. I mean, there's millions upon millions every year put in through these different fundraising initiatives. Just imagine if people weren't so generous. You know, the government wouldn't be able to pick up the bill necessarily. So, bravo to all involved and I'm really pleased you called Donna would you like to say anything else uh, no thank you it's just, it's just fabulous it's just sad. it was really great I'm glad to hear it yes well thank you you're, for having me you're welcome Donna okay, okay have a good day you too thank you bye bye uh, there we go that's great news uh, line number two Dave you're on the air yes good morning Patty I'm doing okay uh, good morning to you Dave how are you I'm not too bad. I called you um, probably about uh, a week and a half ago about the medical transportation uh, benefit. Okay, and what was the particulars of the story? Because I hear a few. Okay, well, uh, that was on a Wednesday I called you, okay? And I think I told you that uh, the next day I was going to go to uh, uh, Mr. Uh, MP here in uh, Gander, Mr. Small. So I did go to Mr. Small's office on... uh, Thursday morning, I met with Ryan, and Ryan said, Dave, uh, there's nothing I can do for you. Oh. He said, uh, we're federal. Your problem is provincial. You'll have to go to uh, John Aggie's office and see Jackie. She said, Jackie is on, uh, it's in the ministry uh, building on Airport Boulevard. So I go to see Jackie. And Jackie was uh, very nice to uh, talk with. I had to sign a consent form for her to uh, check into my uh, problem. And then she gave me another consent form to take home to my wife to sign. Friday, I took it back uh, in the morning and gave it to Jackie. And Jackie took copies of all the information that I had sent to medical transportation dating back to uh, November 2021. Now, Jackie said, we're going, I'm going to contact somebody within uh, the medical transportation. So I said, okay, thank you very much. That afternoon, I also told you that I was dealing with the uh, Newfoundland Ombudsman. Mm-hmm. My contact is Michelle. Michelle phoned me since Friday afternoon, and she said, uh, David, I'm on the way to a meeting, but I got good news. Two of your checks are being signed. Another two or three are being weighed with the formalities, and there's three or four that's being sent back because they're not correctly filled out. Now, I don't know who made who move, whether it was Jackie or Michelle, but I'm very thankful that something was done. And I want to tell you right now, if you're dealing with this uh, problem, you need two forms. One is for transportation. All you do is fill it out and sign it. The other form is airfare and accommodation. The doctor has to sign it and date it. That's right. Now, these forms 
I have them because I took them out to the computer. But they're useless to me or anybody else. If these forms, I, I'm emphasizing this, these forms should be available when the person goes to see the doctor and you got to travel to St. John's or wherever. You only need 500 kilometers to, to uh, qualify for this program. They pay you so much a kilometer and they pay you so much towards your lodging. Now, the problem is these for, the form that has to be signed by the doctor, when are you going to get it signed? When you come home? Yeah, it, it's the double whammy. Yeah, people have to make, you know, visit twice to get the one paper signed when, in fact, if there's going to be an application filed, and even if you have to file that up front, given the kilometers you traveled or a per diem or a, uh, uh, to accommodate your, uh, your meals, these things yeah. can be done up front. There's no reason why we can't have the medical transportation component signed by the doctor. So there's two, as you point out. Airfare and purchase, I, registered private accommodation. There's private vehicle am, usage and other ones like direct deposit and whatnot. But, yeah, these... These should be much easier to access, like at a doctor's office. It makes sense to me. I entirely agree with you, Patty, and I wish that somebody could uh, have a little light come on and have this done, because this came about when I heard your uh, conversation with this lady in Labrador City, how much trouble she was having with her mother's transportation, and it's ridiculous because, like I said before, is we're, we're all expecting to get sick, but we don't expect this frustration that is caused to us because these forms are not in the places where they should be. So the reason why my for my call today is I hope and pray that through this conversation something will be done so these forms will be signed by the doctor when you make your visit. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. I'm glad there's a couple of checks being signed, Dave. Thanks for the update. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, I don't really know where I am. Am I 45 break here, or what's the play? Have I hit that? Okay, this time for break. When we come back, we're talking to Rosemary to talk about learning disabilities in the classroom. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Rosemary, you're on the air. Hi, how are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? Um, well, thank you. i just like to discuss, uh, this is Learning Disability Week, I do believe. Or it's coming up or something. Okay, uh, years ago, I have a tw- right now I have a 28-year-old daughter. And when she started kindergarten, it's like I was, she graduated in grade one and two. She started having trouble with math. Now, I'm going to figure out the subject of math for a reason. And the, the teachers would say as she gradually went on, her, she could not just, she couldn't get math. And people say, well, she's too lazy or she don't want to learn. And she went right on through. So help me God. She went right on through to grade, I believe it was grade 11. And her math, she just barely scraped by with her math. We got her a tutor tutor didn't do any good you know no she just couldn't catch on to math and then in grade 11 at the high school this day in particular Vanessa was having trouble with math and the student teacher a substitute teacher came along and she said Vanessa you're not getting it and Vanessa got very frustrated she said no she said I just don't get it but she said mom dad and everybody else thinks I'm stupid and I'm too lazy to learn and the teacher kept her back after class and she said I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a little test my daughter was diagnosed with this this calculus it's a learning disability with math. Do you ever hear talking about I have so, yeah. Okay, now see, and forgive me for saying this, but a lot of parents, and I know several parents, who will never admit that their child is what we call stupid or they have a learning disability or it's too much better for them to even look into it. But the minute, and, and, and I'll forever be holding myself responsible, I didn't look into it and I should have. 
you know, because, you know, she get very frustrated when I said, Vincent, do you want to learn? Yes, she says. And we just bypassed. She got right to grade 11. Then all of a sudden she was diagnosed with dyscalculia. This could have been, this, this, this learning disability could have been caught in grades three or four or five. Had somebody... Figure it out. Yeah, we do a better job now than we did then with diagnosis of a learning disability, whether it be dyscalculia, yeah. or dyspraxia, dysgraphia, yeah. ADHD, dyslexia, yeah. all of those most common learning disabilities, because you're right. How many children have made their way through the K-12, to or I guess yeah. then the K-11 to system, into K-12, to and never knew why they were struggling and their That's friends right. weren't? But maybe there's something legitimately holding them back. Dyscalculia, I would imagine, is a very common one. You know, and I feel so. Every now and then I say to myself, "My God, my darling, if I knew then, if I knew then what I know now, I felt so guilty." And then one more thing, I have. A, we also have a son. Okay, he was in grade kindergarten, grade one. When he got to grade one, he just wasn't catching on to the work. Now this is another true story. He just wasn't catching on to work. And at the end of grade one, this beautiful teacher had put her two arms around his neck. I said, "What am I going to do? He's just not catching on." She put. Her, she said, "Rosemary," she said, "Your son is going to be a special child." She said, "He won't get far in school, but he'll go further in life." And you know what I said? I said, I said, challenge accepted. That I said, I said, challenge accepted. Don't tell me there's something my son can't do. Is it in a nice way? We went on from that day forward, and by the time he reached grade six, before he went out to high school or junior high, whatever it was, I had a team of experts at the Janeway, and we had his, we had that in place. We had the high, junior high, whatever it was, in place. We had everything in place for him. He was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. By the time he even got this, which was marvelous, I had a team of four in place because I took what she said seriously, and I did. You know, you really should. Don't 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 think your child is stupid. There's no such thing as a stupid child. You know, really, and I do believe that. So he went on through school with ADHD and dyslexia. He went to the team every month. We had an IISP meeting. We had the whole nine years. He graduated grade twelve with a seventy-three average. He never took one pill because the doctor, her name was Dr. Sandra Lovescombe, went to Jamie Godlover. She's a sweetheart. And she said that she wanted to put him on rhythm. And Josh looked at her in the face. He said, I don't want to take any pills. And he was only, I think, 12. And I said, okay, you don't want to take pills? We'll do it the other way. So all his best buddies at home, I haven't to name the school, but I won't. And, you know, and, and they all, it was a team between his friends and the teachers. And I'm telling you, it was amazing. He went on, he did grade 12, graduated best kind. Went on up to the center, and now he's a heavy equipment operator. You know, and it, he never, it never once slowed him down because people took the time to realize this is an issue that can be resolved. But only if you take the time to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose most parents, let's see, how do I say this? If you yeah. think there's something wrong, there might be something wrong. And yeah. I know that had it been one of my children struggling in one area or another, reading comprehension or mathematics yeah. or what have you, not only for additional supports and time at home and help for me and mom or with a, a tutor or something, but if we found that we just weren't making any breakthroughs, I think most yeah. parents would go to the ends of the earth to try to figure out what's going on. And so they should. But they got to be made. But you, but you, it's like when you're traveling, you got to catch the boy. You got to, you got to see it from the very beginning, and accept it. You know, because some people will say, "No, my child's not stupid." No, your child's not stupid. It's just you need that extra little push to find out what it is they're not getting, right? Sure. You know, but you know, I really wanted to bring this up because. When my, by the time my daughter gets grade level, only then she was diagnosed. Like, where do we go wrong? No, she was kind of lazy and stupid. She crying and stressed her out because she didn't get mad. You know, and now she's she did she just graduated criminology in the same same time as university in New Brunswick. Best kind after four years, right? You know, and she didn't need math to get it. Later, <laughs> that was a good thing. 
Well, I'm glad they both endured. Bitter hard work and an eventual diagnosis uh, in combination. Mm-hmm. Good on to the family for making sure that whatever support was needed. Now, of course, you know, this is not a point to a finger of blame about someone no. should have known earlier, someone should have done this, because it's not that simple. Nothing in this world is simple. Right, but I if agree. you're thinking that something's going on, then there's lots of tools out there, and you don't have to go directly to the Department of Health for nope. some of these things. Little tidbits of advice, because there's groups out there that that's what they do. Whether it be have concerns with a diagnosis, maybe somewhere on the spectrum, go to the Autism Society, get pointed in the right direction. You think yeah. you have a learning disability, maybe dyscalculia as part of your child's struggle with math. Go to the Learning Disabilities Association, get pointed in the right direction, because those folks, they just want to help you. They want to help you get to where you want to go. Patty, you've been amazing to speak to as usual. And by the way, Leo's doing fine. I was the lady who lost Leo. Remember the show? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Leo's doing one. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. Take care, Rose. God love you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, well, I take, I'll take one of these for sure before we get to the break. How are we doing on the phone, by the way, Dave? Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Fred. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great, sir. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Beautiful Good. there. You know, Narm, we're getting a lot of rain for the first time for you know, a considerable period of time. It was pouring rain when I came to work this morning. It looks pretty dark. I don't know if it's raining or not, but I can barely see across the road to Cape Mount Terrace. It's dark out there. Yeah. We badly need it here. Anyway, our rivers are down. The salmon and salmon in the sea trout haven't really moved very much. And, of course, well, there's a gentleman on earlier the week from... Um, on the other station there talking about um, he has spent over 60 years on the Gander River and he's never seen it so low and he couldn't maneuver the boats. Yeah, people getting helicopters in because they can't navigate it in their Gander River boats. And someone mentioned to me after hearing that story that Rennie's River was in the same state. I hadn't seen the river in a while, so I purposely went over, had a look. I've never seen it that low ever. And I grew up around that river. Great. Yeah, I'm Anyway, what I called about had to do with uh, clean energy and uh, more specific the two programs that the feds got, which is the greener homes, and the one the provincial got, oil to electric. And this is where I come into the picture here. I'm, uh, I've been, I got a wood oil furnace, and uh, probably about 70% of the energy I burn is uh, wood, another 25% being the oil, and probably uh, baseboard heating, the, the remainder, which is about roughly 5%. And um, in the past, um, the Fed's application is basically somewhat straightforward, and the provincial one it has, as like the saying goes, the devil is in the details. And in this aspect of it, I'm referring to you must burn at least 1,000 litres of fuel in the last 12 months. Yep. And... Um, I burn roughly a lot less than that at times, uh, and I didn't meet that threshold. The uh, and plus now my oil tank expired, and uh, so I got to I got an option basically either buy a new oil tank, which is roughly thirty five hundred dollars. I found out this morning, and plus buy another four hundred gallons or liters of fuel help to pollute the atmosphere a little more so I can qualify to for a central heating system by uh, heat pump this to me you know me basically is somewhat confusing uh, and I talked to uh, 
provincial, uh, the gentleman at provincial uh, environment section, I think it was, and he was um, extremely helpful. And um, but uh, the regulation is the regulation, and uh, there's nothing, of course, until government really. Uh, it's like the previous gentleman said, a light comes on somewhere and says, look, um, probably we should eliminate that just like the feds got done. And just if people want to qualify and switch to, because at some point I'm going not going to be able to keep cutting wood and be as energetic as I am right now. So that's my dilemma. The real trick here, Fred, is that you really should speak to someone, whether it be at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, who administers this program, and or someone in the contracting world to let you know that you're on the right track because there's nothing worse than going down the path and you hire a contractor and you make a purchase and you get your heat pump and then some of the issues where you might not qualify on the outside looking in at that upwards of $5,000. So I'll put that out there first. Secondly, you made mention to continue to pollute the environment to qualify for this greener subsidy. But remember, any expansion of your electric baseboards or what have you, and for this is not just you, for anyone listening, any expansion to ensure that you're on the right path here to even get greener energy as opposed to the heat pump, holy world. <laughs> I mean, we've got that black smoke puking facility going to be there for the extended future. So there's lots of this, but the key is to look for the answers to your specific circumstances before you even make one more move. Because there's lots of eligibility requirements. Right. You've got to have your ducks all in line, and because if not, you're going to probably be held with a, a hefty bill if you realize that you don't qualify. And in my particular case right now, I know I don't qualify, and uh, by the, I, I got a heating bill. I got a fuel bill here for 600 liters, yeah. and, uh, but um, that's, i got to buy another 400, but in the, in the next 12 months, uh, to uh, qualify for the up to uh, one thousand uh, five thousand from the provincial. Yeah, and you got to get a contractor pretty early in the game too. The installation's got to be done by the Ides of March next year. You have to know what's involved in removing your fuel tank from your home, your oil tank from your home. That has an associated cost. So, you know. Whether it be installers, electricians, go through Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, read it all very, very carefully before you even get too wound up about making the move one way or the other. So that would be my my advice to folks. Like cold air contracting, yeah. they we right. do work the with them here. Primarily is uh, to make sure that others that are in my predicament, uh, you know, uh, put pressure or phone calls to their MHAs and to um, hopefully get this regulation changed so that the it's a straightforward process and not burdened down with bureaucratic jargon in some cases. And uh, so... Um, Fair enough. That's what I would encourage individuals to do, which I will be doing myself, of course. Well, what, what is extraordinary on that front is that the eligibility issues inside Canada Greener Homes Initiative is a bit more straightforward than our own. Yeah, and I can't see why, basically why uh, even they're separated number one but that being said i mean uh, why why do we have to be different we're all both of us are supposed to be on the same page that's what we're like <laughs> you know appreciate the time anyway, and the heads Danny, up fred have a good day buddy you too man all the best all right bye-bye uh news break when we come back plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing do not go away Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. 
Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. At least we're not shoveling it yet. Not yet. <laughs> no, I just had a disagreement with you, though. Far? Uh, I heard your preamble, and I heard it last week, too. You said that, that the, the flies and the bugs and the spiders were way worse this year than you've seen. Well, I think I admitted clearly this morning that I can't really clearly remember exactly what it was like on the 15th of October last year, but the swarms of mosquitoes in my backyard over the weekend was really quite something. Wow, because I haven't seen any of it the whole year. Like, I remember last year, the spiders were a big problem. Our house was always coated with piles of spiders all year long. You could sweep them off. The next day, there was piles of them. Same in my backyard. That's the point I was making is fruit flies in the house, and so I've been more attentive to the banana stems and the like, and then the swarms of mosquitoes out back and the spiders and the blue arse flies and the slugs. I don't remember them lasting as much as they have this year in past years. I could be wrong, like I admitted off the top. I have a hard time distinguishing last week from this week, so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, no, but this year I've, I've found the flies have been really non-existent. Really? Yes. I, we have not had them even up until now. We have not had like the mosquitoes, the blue arse flies, you know, everything like that. The spiders, they're like virtually nowhere. And I've got a, I got a cabin up in Whitless Bay Line, and uh, same thing up there. There's nothing up there. Well, buddy, my neighborhood, I, I, of course, I can't speak for the entirety of the neighborhood, but I no. went out to get something in the shed on Saturday afternoon, and just the, the sunlight coming through the still some of the remaining leaves on my maples, all I could see was the swarm or the cluster, oh, I don't know, a thousand mosquitoes in the one little cloud I had to walk through to get to the shed. Then just throughout the course of the day, I was thinking, why am I chasing around mosquitoes and daddy long legs and stuff in my house in the middle of October? Yeah, that's true enough. But uh, like I said, like I'm out in CBS, and um, we there hasn't been an issue whatsoever this year. Like we were out, we were out at fire there the other night, and um, it was gorgeous, beautiful, not a bug to be found. Well, I'm moving to CBS. Enough is enough. <laughs> All right, then, my buddy. I just wanted to say that. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Okay. All cheers. Right. Bye-bye. And, you know, uh, and like I admitted off the top, it is some people really journal things regarding the weather. Uh, I don't. But, you know, whether it be the, when's the first snowfall, when does the first snowfall actually stick to the ground for more than 24 hours, all those types of things. And I know one of my pals does it religiously. Maybe I'll reach out to him and see if he's got a journal regarding bugs because I was just simply amazed. Now, I know the weather's been lovely and maybe some of the decomposition of the leaves, of which also on Saturday morning I went out to have a cup of coffee in the backyard, laid it down on the table, and five seconds later a big old rotten leaf blew right into it. So, anyway. Will I take another one here before we go, Dave? Yes, let's go to line number one. Colleen, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well today, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good, considering the weather and arthritis. <laughs> I'm familiar. Yes, and uh, just let you know, my bug peeve are the wasps. <laughs> I'm dealing with wasps all the time coming in the house when I let the dogs out. <laughs> yeah, me too. You know, after being stung a few times, you become pretty wary of the old wasp. But let's get to it, Colleen, before we sure. run out of our time. Okay, sounds good. Um, I heard you earlier, you were talking about French immersion, and you were you were saying about, you know, it's amazing how the kids learn French so well. Well, number one, they have an intact first language, which is English. And number two, they have a teacher who speaks French to them all day. 
that's it's it's quite easy in that respect. But I do want to uh, correct uh, what I said on Friday with respect to my American Sign Language uh, level of proficiency. I said it should be uh, superior, superior plus, but really. Um, in actual fact, Dr. Kristen Snodden, who was the Churchill's expert at the uh, Carter's Human Rights Hearing, um, actually she said it best, and it has to be near, na- near native or native, right? So person whose first language is ASL. Okay. Right? Okay, so I wanted, there was another point that Garan Price said in his testimony as I was going through the transcript. And um, he actually made a statement there and he said, I'm going to quote, and the Board of Trustees itself, in reflection of the franchised gap that we had in communications, actually started the hand speaking at our board meetings. He was hand speaking. He's referring to American Sign Language. So this this is 2022. The um, human rights uh, case was first initiated back in 2017. So like five years later, he still doesn't know the language uh, that uh, people who are deaf use. I mean, I think that's that's ridiculous. That's beyond an insult to me. Um, even, even with, uh, oh, and guess what? It wasn't the Board of Trustees itself. As a matter of fact, um, the Churchills and, or, and myself, actually the first, the first um, two interpreters who interpreted it at a board meeting on September the 7, 2019, I paid for at a cost of $230. It wasn't Newfoundland and Labrador English School District. It wasn't the Board of Trustees. It came out of my pocket, which I certainly do not um, complain about. But, I mean, saying that, that they initiated that, I don't think so. So I took exception to that piece. Um, and my third point is, basically, Grammarie Price a number of people from Newfoundland Labrador English School District, a number of people from Department of Education, the bureaucrats. All of this, to me, is a general culture and attitude of society which limits deaf people's world. Hearing people force their beliefs, opinions, myths, prejudices on deaf people. If you can't speak, then you are stupid. And that is quoted from Paul Higgins' book, A Sociology of Deafness, back, he he wrote it in 1980, that hearing people have assumed that the deaf are not fully competent human beings. The only difference between people who are deaf and people who are hearing is that uh, deaf people use a visual language and hearing people uh, use an oral or speaking language. Deaf people are not disabled. They are deaf-able. It's society that limits their world. They are a marginalized group of people, meaning they are viewed right from birth by the professionals involved. The ENT doctors here in the province who performed the uh, cochlear implant surgeries said back in April 27, 2009, in the telegram, he said uh, that deafness is a disability which is being eradicated in Newfoundland Labrador. Being eradicated is... I don't, I don't even know what that means. 
eradicate it means getting rid of. Oh, I know what the word means. But you don't, you can't eradicate deafness. It's, it's not. We're not talking about polio. It's not a disease well, that we're passing around to each other. Exactly. And this is the surgeon who performs the cochlear implant surgery here at Janeway. Oh, so you know, then the context is important. So he means it can yeah. be if we everybody got a cochlear implant. Okay, that's different. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was out of context there. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I mean, Hitler in World War II tried eradicating people who were deaf through sterilization and later by death. Uh, parents are told by Jamie Ideology, Kim told me this herself, Kim Churchill, that um, if you choose a CI for Carter, if you choose cochlear implants, then you cannot use sign language. There are no other options um, that I'm aware of given the hearing parents at the time when they're, they're told that their child is deaf. I mean, aren't doctors supposed to tell the patient the pros and cons of a surgery? As a matter of fact, okay, National Association of the Deaf, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote here. Now, that's an American association, and they wrote a position statement on early cognitive and language development and education of DHH children. And this is actually, this was uh, published 2022, so this is current. A 40% of, of deaf and hard of hearing children who have C cochlear implants, but do not use American Sign Language, get a linguistic benefit. So what happens to the other 60%? They are linguistically deprived when, when doctors and speech, uh, audiologists promote cochlear implants and speech only. And what that ha- when that happens, you have uh, language deprivation. If there's no language given right from birth, it's uh, language deprivation, which is considered to be neglect. So this general attitude of people, the bureaucrats uh, who are making decisions at the Department of Education, uh, the people who are in positions of power at Newfoundland Labrador English School District, and the Department of Health, in my opinion, are promoting linguistic language deprivation in deaf children uh, in this province. And um, just the last piece here I want to say, um, I've read another, another article, and it's uh, recent. It's called Avoiding Linguistic Neglect of Deaf Children, and there was a study quoted here. So you're talking about child abuse as well. Uh, this is one study, and there's a lot of different studies, and this was um, taken back in 2014. 48% of these uh, deaf college sample taken, uh, so what they, what they experienced before age of 16, 48% suffered emotional abuse, 44% emotional ne- neglect, 44% phys- physical neglect, and 40% physical abuse. 31% for sexual abuse. So it all comes back around to language deprivation, uh, neglect. People really got to start researching and get current information as to the decisions they are making and how it affects the lives of deaf children in this province and right across Canada. And I do hope and pray that um, um, the adjudicator in this human rights uh, uh, commission will do the best thing that could possibly happen for these children in this province and across Canada. Like you said, it will have a um, an effect, an impact. 
appreciate the time this morning, Colleen. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Paul wants to talk about what he sees in sports on the tube. And Harold talking about converting from oil to electric heat. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Patty, I want to talk about something we don't see much on television. You know what that is? All women's sports. It's all dominated by men, even even today, Patty. You find that? I suppose that's true. I mean, the uh, unfortunate reality is ratings for men's sports is one thing and ratings for women's yeah. sports is another thing. But look, yeah. oh, just this weekend, I watched women's golf, uh, women at the Rugby World Cup. So I yeah. watched our girls play. They look great out there. Saw some women's tennis. So yeah, I don't know. But I'm a fan of those sports. And I, I see the women covered, you know, just like men, for instance, with golf and tennis, for instance. But fair ball. So what other women's sports would you like to see? Well, I tell you, now, way back in 14, when, when the Team Canada was over there, in, in Russia, Sochi, Russia. Do you remember the women's national team was playing the American team and they were losing and they came back and won the game? That was probably one of the best games I ever saw, Patty. Uh, I know Montreal and Toronto in the NHL is a big rivalry, but to me, the American women's uh, Olympic team against the Canadian women's Olympic team, that's big time, Patty. I love watching stuff like that. Oh, what a the, real rivalry there, buddy. Uh, one of the finest hockey games, most exciting hockey games, let me say, that I've ever seen was uh, Canada versus the USA at the Salt Lake uh, Olympics. That was where the, we, one of the boys planted the loony at center ice and the, the Haley, uh, Wicca, uh, Haley Wickenheiser. Wickenheiser, sorry. Uh, her interview after the game where there was the story about the Americans stomping on our flag in their dressing room and she was so wound up. Uh, that's one of those games I'll never forget. And we played against the Americans and the refs that night. That was really some, you know, well, I, the excitement in that I, game was amazing. Yeah, I find it really exciting. Like Even the women's, uh, over the summer, Patty, CBC had on the Rugby Sevens from... Uh, from uh, Africa. Yeah. And what, what exciting. You wouldn't get me on the field with them women, i tell you that now. They'd follow you over. They're really, I think they're rougher than the men. But it's really exciting to watch, i got to say. And like I say, the only thing that come to my mind was in, in regards to like a professional league sport would be like the WNBA. That's the only one that comes to my mind. Maybe you can correct me in regards to a national league yeah no that's the WNBA is the league um, and it, it does get coverage but certainly nowhere near look there's professional women's hockey in Canada that gets absolutely no coverage yeah. or virtually none I'm not sure what other sports people would be talking about or thinking about that they'd like to see more of but I do watch the LPGA I do watch a lot of tennis including women's tennis and like I mentioned I watched uh, the rugby 15s this weekend and I have watched lots of sevens over the years we, we are actually amongst the world leaders we're in the top 10 in women's rugby sevens uh, so, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I was going to ask you something. The Tele 10, we just had the Tele 10. Yeah. Have you ever participated in that? I have. <laughs> you have. Now, do you remember, uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not imagining this, but back in the 80s, wasn't there something here in St. John sponsored by one of the local breweries called the Short Fat Guys Race? I don't know. <laughs> you don't remember that? No, How many listeners might remember that? Yeah. Sign me up because I'd I, I, I sign on to that one. <laughs> no, I wasn't here in the 90s, so that would have passed me by. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, I did participate in the Tele 10. Uh, certainly no earth-shattering records were set by yours, truly. I finished, and I was pretty pleased with it. Oh, yeah. But it's uh, – it, Look, I mean, I don't know how people do it all the time. My wife is a runner. I just don't get it. You know, I'm a bit too old and busted up to be at it all the time. But, yeah, I did 
did indeed do it that year. It was just over two hours it took me to finish, which was certainly not a very good time, but it was so hot that day. I was equally pleased not to be victim of the heat on the side of the road. So, yeah, I did well, yeah, it. They just had to knock, I think they should have it in October every year, Patty, because June and July is just too hot. I think they will. I think they learned a lot this year about having it in October. Of course, people say, well, September is even nicer. September is the more likelihood of some nasty weather. So October seems about right. I think the runners enjoyed it. One more thing before I go, my buddy. Sure. Earlier they were talking about uh, wasp and stuff like this. Yeah. I don't know uh, if you heard this, but years ago my girlfriend told me that if you get a wasp or a bee come in the house, get a can of hairspray. Spray their wings and they're good as dead. They can't fly. Yeah, that's probably an auto killer, you know. And I remember growing up at the cabin when you have the door open all the time and the old foolish paper bag blown up with air tied up by <laughs> string at the top of the door. And I remember that too. I go around the bay, visit my relatives. They always had a brown paper bag hung up in the doorway. Yeah, I don't think it works, <laughs> but anyway. I know. Oh, well, to each their own. Thanks for talking to me, buddy. Appreciate the call. Thanks, Paul. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, and not because I say so or talk about the caliber or the quality or the talent. The reality regarding the amount of money. Look, if we're talking about national sports, remember there was a huge pushback by Canada's women's soccer team. Of course, world champions, Olympic gold medalists. Talk about the fact they don't get paid like the men. And the pushback immediately from the boys was that, well, it's not as good and people don't watch it. A lot of people watch Canada's women's team win the Worlds and win the Olympics, put it that way. So it's one thing when it's a national brand. When they get in a national organization, when they get into the world of professional women's sports, it's true. They don't get paid as much. They don't uh, draw as many eyeballs or sell as many tickets. That's reality of what actually happens. But in some sports, for instance, like in professional tennis, you go to the big events. If I win Wimbledon and my wife wins on the women's side, we get the same check. So there's some stuff that's happening to change the water around the beans in the professional world. But like, like I mentioned, I've watched both, I guess, the trio of women's rugby, tennis, and golf over the weekend because I'm a, surf, a channel surfer watching sports, and I do appreciate all three of those disciplines. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Harold's in the queue to talk about moving from oil to electric and then whatever you want to talk about right after Harold. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Harold, you're on the air. Yes, Penny. Uh, this is Harold, Ye- Harold Yetman here in Princeton, Bonavista Bay. Okay. Uh, what I'm calling about, what well, I'm first time caller. Welcome. And what I'm calling about is not converting to electric heat. Oh. What I'm calling about is the $500 rebate for burning oil that they announced earlier this year. That's right. Uh, anyone anyone earning 100000 is entitled to get up to 100000 is entitled to get the $500 rebate. Well, there's a couple of different programs, uh, and I jumbled them up in my mind, I have to admit. So the I think you're referring to the inflation protection package that was announced last week where anyone... No. Okay, so there's the two different pots of 500 like, bucks. Earlier, like last winter, like where the price of oil was up and that, and you're entitled to a $500 rebate. That's right. Well, I... I I burn propane, and I'm not entitled to it, see? This is what I'm calling about. Okay. And uh, anybody, like I, uh, anybody that can purchase $250 worth of of oil, 250 liters of oil, rather, is entitled to get the rebate. And now I, I burn, I purchase $1,800 worth of propane for the burn in my furnace, 
which is the only only source of heat that I have in my home. But anybody purchasing two hundred fifty dollars, two hundred fifty liters of oil, is entitled to the five hundred dollar rebate. And you know, and I know that you cannot eat your home with two hundred fifty liters of oil. No, you cannot. There got to be there got to be some other source of heat. But there, uh, I only burn propane. That's all my source. That's my my only source of heat. And I'm not in, entitled to that rebate. You know, which is wrong. It's a oil product. I got a furnace burning propane. They they purchase 250 liters of oil, and they burn wood the rest of the year. But they're entitled to that uh, rebate, which I am not. And you know, I don't see. I think there's discrimination, really. Well, they certainly left some people out. The two notables are, as you mentioned, propane and wood. Yes. And I've heard this complaint many, many times. And the only thing that covers is furnace oil and stove oils yes. are inside of that. And this one, all I was saying off the top about the two different pots of money is the 500 bucks allowance announced last week was for individuals. This 500 bucks is based on net family income up to $100,000 or less. Yeah, so just two different bags. That's a pots. different one. What I'm concerned about is, you know, what's the, why are they discriminating what you burn in your furnace. Uh, my primary, my only source of heat is propane in a propane furnace, which I've been using in this home for over 20 years. But somebody else can just purchase 250 liters of oil and burn wood the rest of the year because there's nobody can eat their home on 250 liters of oil. No, that's true. You've got to be have another source of heat. And, like, I only, I only purchase... Uh, propane. That's my only source of heat, and I and I purchased eighteen hundred liters of oil of for, uh, propane, and not entitled to any of that rebate. As far as I'm concerned, like and Premier Fury and Minister Cody should look at this program and don't discriminate against people like me that's burning propane as their only source of heat. You know, I should be entitled to that that rebate the same as the people burning oil. Harold, I don't use propane. Give us an idea how much it costs uh, today versus this time last year. Well, uh, my propane bill, I'd say last year, almost doubled. I went through 1,800 liters, and the price of, uh, of propane last year went as high as $1.25, $1.26 a liter plus sales tax. I purchased $2,500 worth of propane in the four months of the winter season. And I'm not entitled to that uh, rebate, you know, which is, is discrimination, really. It certainly leaves a bunch of people on the outside looking in. I think there's... Something like 19,000 households use oil as their primary source of heat. I'd, just for my own curiosity, I'd be curious to know how many homes use propane as their primary source of heat. I don't have that number. I'm just saying that out loud just yeah. in case someone can point me in the right direction because then we'd have a we'd have a, some numbers to add to the context, right? Yeah. So if it's yeah. 19,000 versus, I don't know, give me a round number, 5,000. They yeah. use propane. That's 5,000 families with if they have a net family income of $100,000 or less that are absolutely being left out. That's true. That's right. And like a lot of People got propane uh, fireplaces, but that's not a full uh, source of heat. I have just a furnace, which is my only source of heat. You know, that's that's the difference. Uh, I saw it in the Telegram there a couple of weeks ago. Somebody in Cornerbrook was was voicing their same opinion, 
about uh, why he's not entitled to the propane rebate too, you know. And I think uh, Premier Fury and, and Minister Cody should have another look at this. And, and if you've got a primary source of heat, uh, only source of heat is propane, you should be entitled to this money. Point taken, sir. Appreciate your time as a first-timer. Stay in touch. Okay, thanks very much, buddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the... NDP member for the Torngat Mountains, that's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yes, yes, thank you. So I've heard your comments regarding the really scary numbers that we've seen recently released regarding suicide deaths in the province. 25% uptick here, but doubled in Labrador, Grenfell. I know, I mean, the passion in your voice is unmistakable. The issue regarding cost of living and the pandemic and what have you, we can always try to craft policy around it. The question I wanted to put to you this morning is regarding intergenerational trauma. And we know that has widespreading impact, whether be about uh, foster care and being kept in the region, keep your language alive, those types of things, issues with addictions. But how do we pragmatically address it? That's where I'm looking for your perspective as someone on the ground, as an Indigenous woman. What do we actually do when we talk about addressing that one directly? Well, Patty, to really to end the intergenerational trauma, we have to look at the, the next generation. And unfortunately, the supports are not there from the provincial and even from the federal government at that. And, you know, the provincial government produced a health accord. And in that health accord, it talked about intergenerational trauma. It talked about trauma that the parents experience actually being passed on through the offspring. Um, you know, and that's been documented. So for for me, it's really difficult when the government just talks about mental health services and they don't talk about the supports for quality of life in my district. And even this past government, this government that we have sitting in the House of Assembly today that was elected in 2014, 2015 and just recently re-elected, they've had policies that actually impacted the social and economic and thereby the quality of health and life of, of the people in my district. Because right now, the cost of food is so expensive uh, at the store. And for the Inu and the Inuit, they relied heavily on the caribou, and, and we know the caribou has been wiped out to the, to the point now where the Inu and the Inuit in Northern Labrador are not allowed to hunt the caribou. Also, many of the Inuit relied on the, the, the fishery, the, the codfish and the salmon, to, to be able to, uh, and the char, to, to be able to feed their, their, their families. So external impacts on a, you know, on a national or global level has impacted the Inuit's traditional access to their food. And then you have this government taken off the freight boat. I keep going back to that freight boat because it really drove the cost of food up on the North Coast. And, and we post on social media and, and show people how outrageous the, the price of food is um, for, the, for the Inuit on, and the Inuit on the North Coast. So being hungry or not being able to feed your children or look after your, your seniors, your elders, that, that's, that's another layer of trauma that the adults have to go through. And also we, we experience secondary trauma too where, 
you know, where, where people have been impacted or we lost people through suicide. Even the suicide of the past is impacting future suicides because, um, you know, like secondary trauma is, is has a great impact on, on families, uh, supporters and loved ones of, of people who've suffered trauma. And if you can't, if you can't feed yourself and your children, if you can't house yourself and your children and, and, and your loved ones, if you actually can't heat a house, you know, uh, if you're living in overcrowded where where people's security and safety is jeopardized, you know, uh, for for us on the north coast, it's all connected. And the, the government now talks about, you know, trying to improve the access to mental health services. But still, by clawing back our access to to food, to to uh, housing, um, to to supports like access to being able to heat our houses, and it's not only about the cost of electricity. On the North Coast, we're paying, uh, uh, you know, we go over the one thousand life block, one thousand kilowatt hours, which is very very little, you know, for trying to heat our house with electricity. We paid nineteen cents a kilowatt hour. 19 cents a kilowatt hour when we look at trying to use gasoline to, uh, in our snowmobiles to go off and and haul wood we, you know all summer we've been frozen at 245.7 cents a, a liter frozen 245.7 cents a liter you know and that's not only you know we we're going to try and haul wood now in in the fall but also we we you know a lot of people have lost an opportunity to go in speedboat and hunt and fish to collect food for the winter. So, you know, all, all of these things are I- impacting us. Um, and, and when you look at the, um, the social determinants of health, you know, like a, a lot of people don't even know what they are, but it's, it's about safe housing, transportation. It's about um, education, job opportunities, but also access to nutritional, nutritious foods and, and, uh, you know, um, language and literacy skills, all of these things. But for, for us, you know, safe housing, you know, that's, you know, that that most people, like, have struggled to get that. A building lot now on the North Coast because of the, you know, these changes to transportation. A building lot on the North Coast now costs between 250000 to $300,000 just for the lot that doesn't include the house wow you know so regarding the price of food you know can you help me understand how and why the two programs that were supposed to be directly benefiting the consumer was uh, nutrition north and the airlift subsidy they looked like they were carefully crafted the savings would be passed on but obviously not do you know what's going on with that programs and if anyone's working towards making them better because there's looks and they sound like they should work but obviously they're not well, it's a limited program, and it only goes on the cost of transportation. So really, technically, you know, when we look at where does that subsidy go on, it starts in Goose Bay. But, you know, to get the food into Goose Bay costs so much. And uh, also, too, it's a very um, – it takes a lot of work for the um, supplier, the, the, the retailer, to actually be able to access that subsidy. It takes a lot of paperwork. So we, we struggle sometimes where um, some of the retailers don't actually even go through the, you know, the trouble of, 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 of um, doing the paperwork 
so that he can put the subsidy onto the food. But more often than not, we see that the prices are already cost so much. And then when you put on the, the, the subsidy, it, 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 it still really is um, the reach of most people. And, and like I said, you know, back in the day, when Labrador didn't have interconnecting uh, Trans-Canada, Trans-Labrador access, the, the highways weren't there. Uh, you know, the, the freight boats used to go from the island uh, uh, to Labrador, and, and that actually helped keep the cost of food down. But when they connected, uh, all the other regions of Labrador, but not my, my northern Labrador communities, when they connected them all, they took off all the freight boats, including the one to the north coast. You know, so to us, is we never got to benefit. And even when we ask about the Trans-Labrador Highway coming to the North Coast, they say, well, we already spent a billion dollars. But, you know, you spent a billion dollars connecting all the other regions except Northern Labrador. Not one dollar has been spent, you know, uh, paving the road towards the North Coast. It's been all for the other districts. So that, to me, is steeped in racism and, and, and systemic racism, uh, you know, in, in the government, institutional racism, if you want to call it. Also, too, is it's very, very self-serving for the other districts to allow this to continue without stepping up and saying, we need that, we need that access for the North Coast. But really, when you look at it, is in order to stop intergenerational trauma, you have to actually be able to have children grow up where they can have safe housing, they can have food so they're not going to school hungry, that they're, they're not hungry, uh, they're not cold, you know. You know, we're, we're looking at things that people in Canada and people in Newfoundland Labrador take for granted. And like for us, you know, as, as, as people of this province, as people of Canada, we support we support helping uh, refugees. We, 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 we help support, uh, you know, we support helping uh, peoples in, in other regions that, uh, of the world that, that don't have access to clean drinking water and safe, secure housing and, you know, food and, and clothing. We, we support Canada helping. But when you look at my region, when you're going to my communities, people are really, really struggling. And, and and we don't understand why, like, not only is this government not helping with, uh, with these things, they're actually clawing a lot of this back. And, and actually, a lot of people say the North Coast, you know, our quality of life, our cost of living is worse than when, when it was in the 70s when I was a child. Leela, simply because we've cleared 12 o'clock, we're out of time for this morning, but I do appreciate you making time for the show. You're always welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's the NDP member for the Torrengat Mountains, Lee Levins. All right, we're out of time. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.